0: Good morning, GPC. Oh, I'm loud. Can we? Thank you so much. That's over here. Excellent. Um, good morning. If you don't know me, my name's James. I'm the youth lead here, and it's a blessing to be able to share with you today. Um, Becky and Chris are away for till the 25th, actually, and so said, do you want to do a couple of sermons? And um, so these are my first. So if that's not faith and action from them, I don't know what is. But never mind. Um, So, our reading today comes from Mark, and um, this is actually the first of two sermons. Obviously, I'm going to do next week as well. So, today we're really going to look at what the call of Jesus is on our lives, what that looks like, and then next week we're going to look at how do we obey it, how do we follow it out. So, the Gospel according to Mark is actually a really interesting one because it was the very first to be written, it's also the shortest, it does 16 chapters. And it was actually um, written, scholars believe, to be memorized and to be shared verbally um, with all those around. And so uh, the reading of our, um, the length of our reading today, sorry, is actually appropriate in its brevity um, in comparison with the gospel. And if we look at the wider context of Mark chapter one, the gospel is very much well, that chapter is very much concerned with who Jesus is, and it's concerned with what the kingdom of God looks like. And Mark doesn't do a lot of legroom here. Um, Basically, Mark will tell us what his opinion is in Mark 1.1. It says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ, obviously, coming from the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah. So Jesus the Messiah, Son of God. And Mark leaves it there. That's his opinion done. And he uses a cacophony of different voices to tell us who Jesus is. So we've got um, Isaiah testifying to who um, John the Baptist is going to be or prophesying his coming. John the Baptist, obviously, his whole ministry is telling us who Jesus is and then what he's come to do. Um, We've got God the Father himself and Jesus has been baptized saying, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Um, You've got later on the driving out of an evil spirit in the temple and the spirit actually testifying to who Jesus is. So it's quite a clever um, little chapter. But our reading today deals with not so much, the, well it does deal with the identity of Christ, but more specifically the call of Christ on our lives. And we see two kinds of calls here. Um, can I have the next slide? Sorry, thanks. So this reading is split into two. So there's Mark 1 uh, verses 14 to 15. So after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And I'm going to break it down sort of um, verse by verse. So the, N, the NIV that's in your pew Bibles is actually probably not the best translation for this because after John was put in prison, it seems like it's a timestamp. Mark's putting a timestamp on when Jesus began his ministry. Um, other translations will give you the word handed over, after John was handed over. And so it's a bit of a baton passing between John and Jesus. John's finished his ministry. His ministry was to proclaim and appear the way for Jesus. He's done that, and Jesus now starts his. And, but it's also foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus, because Jesus, once his ministry is done, he will be handed over as well to the Romans. Okay? And so, and that also, it's a pattern that follows, carries over to the apostles because they had martyred as well for the good news of Christ. So it's clearly a picture, um, painting a picture of persecution. Then verse 15, we see what Jesus preached. So the time has come. It's really interesting he has to say this. Um, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And so we get a rich sense of Jesus' identity and significance, but also the call to God in us. So he preaches the time has come and what he does um, there is there's a very, very interesting use of the Greek word because normally in Greek if you were talking about time you'd use the word chronos which is where we get chronology from. Um, But here they've chosen another word called kairos. So kairos actually means the appointed time. So it's telling us Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied to come at the appointed time to be sent by God at the appointed time. Okay, But he's also saying this because the Jews the, around him in Galilee actually weren't aware of the times or the signs. So he's giving them a bit of a wake up call. The kingdom of God is near. Oh, it's not there. No, the kingdom of God is near. We'll ignore that. Um, the Greek, again used here, I'm getting my money's worth out of my Greek, by the way, is um, a geiso. And it's, it's a verb, and it's got two translations. And it's got a translation of it can either mean to draw near or it can mean to arrive. And so in that translation, we actually see the present and the future realities of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here in Jesus. Okay? He's brought about the kingdom of God, but it won't be fulfilled until the second coming. All right. And so Christ, we see, is the decisive agent in God's plan of redemption repent and believe the good news. Now, this to the Jews at the time must have been quite surprising. See, the Jewish picture of their Messiah was someone who would come and who was going to um, free them from the Roman yoke of oppression and who was then going to exalt all of Israel over the neighbors. And um, so they were very much sort of preparing for victory. They were preparing for battle. That's what they were expecting. And they were expecting the Messiah to come in pomp and in majesty. Instead, Jesus comes to them as a humble carpenter's son. And instead of preaching victory, he says, repent. Turn from your wicked ways of self-righteousness. Turn from your trying and your striving to fulfill the law and believe the good news that Christ has come to die on a cross as a propitiation to turn away the wrath of God and to free people from eternal damnation. And so we get the picture here, and it's, it's a big paradigm shift. It's from us to God. Okay? It's going from independence back to dependence, as we had in the Garden of Eden. And so salvation is all of God, and that's what this is telling us. So this is the first call. This is Christ's call to salvation. Okay? Give up and trust me, is basically what he's saying. But is that the Christian life? The answer is no. There's more. Can I have the next slide, please? Sorry, thanks. So, verses 16 to 20, we see Jesus calling the first disciples. And we need to be quite careful here because um, when you go to try and exegete this piece of text, um, they're actually not um, unbelievers. Jesus isn't coming to some randoms and going, hey, follow me, um, as some people do. Uh, sort of interpret it as what he's doing is he's going to people he already knows. So these men have met him in John 1. They've already met him, they've maybe walked with him, you know, been with uh, a Christian a year or so. And so he comes to these men, but to properly understand this, we need to understand the context. So at the time, the Jewish um, education system for boys was very much focused around the goal of becoming a rabbi. That's the ultimate thing, like, you don't want to be a doctor, you don't want to be a lawyer, your mum and dad want you to become a rabbi, okay? And so... From a very early age, these Jewish boys would go off and they would learn um, all the skills they needed to become a rabbi. So at the age of five, they began to study the scriptures. At the age of 10, the Mishnah, which is your oral Torah. Um, at age 13, they could fulfill the commandments. At 15, um, the Talmud, so they started making these rabbinic interpretations of the law. At age 18, the bridal chamber. 20, they could pursue a vocation. And at age 30, they had the authority to teach others. So if you were an exceptional, exceptional student um, in what's called the Beth Midrash, which was their secondary school, basically, you would um, go and you would find yourself a very famous rabbi, and you would go and you would ask to follow them. Okay? And that rabbi would only pick you if and only if you had the potential to become greater than that rabbi. So you've got Jesus, who are, you know, incarnate son of God, who could be considered maybe the greatest rabbi, well, definitely the greatest rabbi, coming to fishermen. They're not rabbis. He's coming to those who are actually failures by that system, if you want to think of it that way. Okay. And he's saying to them, follow me. But it's not only surprising in terms of their um, rabbinic qualifications, of which they, they didn't have any, but also in terms of their character. Okay. So you've got Peter, or uh, well Simon Peter, um, who we know denied Jesus three times famously, Kind of impulsive too. Um, I think we get the sense that he sort of spoke before he thought as well, um, especially when he was in the boat and Jesus was on the water and he would go, I'll oh, come walk to you. And I'm guessing he may have said that when, oh, and the other disciples are off. You go, like, go on. Um, and so he was impulsive. You've got James and John, who Jesus himself rather affectionately nicknamed the sons of thunder. That was not because they'd had beans the night before or anything, um, that was simply their tempers. And so he called these men, and these men responded immediately. We see no hesitation. We see no, oh, you know, can I have the terms and conditions, please? Um, none of that. They just dropped their nets, and they went. But why did they do this? If we look at it from a modern standpoint, we could go, oh, they're smelly fishermen. They don't want to be fishermen. This was a way out. But actually, fishing at the time was incredibly prosperous. It was an incredibly prosperous business. The mainstay of the Galilean Diet was fish. So the fact that James and John and their father Zebedee have hired men, as it tells us that they've got a lot of wealth. So they're leaving behind not only their wealth, their societal standing, because that's linked in with it, their identity, all to follow Jesus. But we get a further picture when Jesus calls um, James and John. Sorry, can I have the next slide? Thank you. Um, he calls James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So they're also leaving their family, chance of an inheritance from their father, and the companionship of the hired men. So they left everything to follow Jesus. The question becomes, though, why? Why did they leave everything to follow Jesus? And Mark doesn't give us very much sort of um, evidence as to why they did. So. Luke, you've got a bit of a preview miracle the disciples see, so they get some clue who Jesus really is. Um, and John, obviously John the Baptist tips them off to who Jesus is, that's the Lamb of God. Um, but Mark, we get nothing. And commentators have different answers, but the two um, I came across was this. The first is that it's Mark here is painting a Christological picture, so he's painting a picture of who Jesus is. And Jesus is fully human and fully God within one person. okay? Two natures within one person. And so what Mark's saying here is the call of Jesus is as powerful as the call of God. Okay, The call of God none of us can really refuse. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. So it was simply painting a picture of his authority that he had. But the second is... And there's an eschatological, big word, eschatological, an end of times, if you like, um, element to it, where we see this term fishes of men used when Jesus calls um, Simon and Andrew. And fishes of men is interesting because in the Old Testament, God is the fisher of men. Okay, And he fishes men out for divine judgment, divine retribution. In the New Testament, it's the other way around. Here, God is still the fisher of men, but he calls us to also help him fish for men. But he's fishing them out from his wrath, okay, through Christ. And that's the picture that's being painted here. But it has more um, significance than that as well, because this term fisher of men was kept alive at a place called Qumran, and that's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in Qumran, Qumran was a group of Jews called the Essenes who um, retreated into the desert To prepare the way for the Lord, they took um, that statement of Isaiah at the beginning of Mark 1 and they used it as their motto, if you will. Um, And their settlement of Qumran came about because of a conflict. It was a conflict between the chief priest of the temple at the time, who they've labelled the wicked priest, and then there was their leader who they've called the teacher of righteousness. Okay, So you can tell what they thought of the situation. Um, Supposedly, the teacher of righteousness usurped Um, sorry, the the wicked priest usurped the role from the teacher of righteousness, okay, they think. So it's painting this picture here of Jesus as a legitimate teacher, as the legitimate high priest as well. Okay, so it's really quite clever. Excellent. So Christ is fishing men out not for judgment, but for salvation. And he's calling these men to help him with that. So this is the second call of God on us. It's a call to partake in his ministry, in his redemptive plan, if you will. But what does that mean for us? Now, I don't know about you. You may have been fishing in a boat with your brother and, uh, on a lake and then seen Jesus by the side of the lake calling you to come and follow him. If you did, that's wonderfully biblical. Um, I think it's a great story. Um, but for most of us, I don't think that's actually what happens. Most of us have responded to this first call of salvation, but now we've got a second call to partake. But for us, I believe that what we need to do to follow that is actually just be attentive to where God's leading us. God has put us in our workplaces, in our communities, in our churches, in our schools, in our you know, universities, all these places for a reason. Okay? We need to be attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And God can and he does use really small acts of obedience to do amazing things. He may not ask you to jump out of the boat entirely for your whole life and drop and leave everything and change your job. He may, but chances are probably not. Chances are it's something smaller. I'll give you an example. Um, for those who haven't heard my story, I was, uh, became a Christian in 2018. Um, I went through uni, I was a complete atheist. I was a complete, you know, um, quite an ardent atheist, Richard Dawkins follower, you know, all all that kind of jazz. And um, I ended up meeting a lovely young woman um, in 2017 on a dating app, funnily enough. And um, what happened was we went on a few dates and she was wonderful and lovely and I'm like, oh, I want to pursue this. This is great. And she goes, I can't date you. You're not a Christian. So you can probably guess what I said next. I'll come to church with you and I'll become a Christian. Uh, And so 2017... Her little act of obedience, she took me to church. She took me to St. Paul Simon Street. And I sort of, I went once, and then we saw Lost Touch, and I didn't go back. But 2018, I ended up walking back into that place. And her friendship, as well as the other friendships I've made, and relationships there, have meant an awful lot to me. So God can and he does use the smallest acts to reach people. Now, I'm not suggesting if you're single, you join a dating app and try and evangelize. Um, that may be an interesting ministry though um, <laughs> but what I am suggesting is that God's given you gifts and resources to use okay? maybe you have a friend who's an unbeliever who's going through a tough time why not show them some love send them a box of chocolates okay? be there for them talk to them on the phone whatever they need this is what we're called to do and we're living in a world that's so devoid of love at the moment true love all right that covenant love, that agape love, it's so, um, so devoid of it, and everyone's expecting something else in return. I don't know if you've ever bought someone a gift, someone's bought you a gift, and you're like, oh, that's cool, thank you, and you go and buy them a gift of similar or equal value. It's sort of like, the amount of love you give me, I can give you back in return. Okay? The world is crying out for the love of Christ. Okay? That love, that doesn't necessarily demand anything in return for it. So what is Jesus calling you today to today? Sorry, Stephanie, can I have the next slide? Thanks. What is he calling you to today? For some of you, uh, if you're a non-Christian, it might be to come to him for the first time for salvation, and if it is, please come and see one of us. Um, we'd love to pray for you. But for the rest of us, I think it's probably one of these things here. Maybe it's the first time for you to get, actually get out of the boat in some area of your life and partake in his work. Maybe it's called share the good news with someone. Um, maybe, maybe you're really shy but you really want your street to know about Jesus. May I suggest some gospel tracks and just pop them in letterboxes? That's a great way to do it. So I think we should take some time now to hear what Jesus is saying to us. And I really want to ask you three questions. Well, I want you to take three questions to God. And these are the three. What are you calling me to do today? How can I use my gifts to partake in the work of your kingdom? And what areas of my life do I need to change in order to do this? So just as the last worship song plays, I'd like us to just keep those in mind. Ask Jesus what, he wants to, well, what answers he wants to give you to those questions. And then next week we'll talk about how we go about obeying that call. Fantastic. Bill, do you want to...